Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Well, you're going to get quite a workout at Advent. I'm just realizing all the standing and all the sitting, but I'd love to invite us to stand again for the gospel reading. Uh, this is John 15. This is the fourth of, of and last uh, of the I Am statements of Jesus um, that we've been going through during this soft launch period. So uh, would you read along with me um, in the bulletin? I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciple. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the gospel of the Lord. You can be seated. Would you all pray with me? Lord, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gathering together of your people this morning, this afternoon. And I pray, Father, that as we, as we read your word and as we study it, Father, that you would unite us by your spirit as we've been praying and reminding ourselves of, and that we would learn more of what it means to abide in you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start with, with a question, more rhetorical in nature, but, um, but one that I really want us to ask ourselves internally, and that is, do you go to church or are you a part of the church? And probably some of us are already beginning, you know, we, we might know the Sunday school answer to that question, but I want you to really ask, what is it that is in your heart? Do you go to church or are you a part of the church? Because at the root of this question is the identity with which we see ourselves as Christians. Right? Are, we, are we individuals who are in need of some grace or are we a part of something far more vital because we ourselves are dead apart from it? I was reading a blog, which is never a good idea, but this one was actually good. Um, It's from a a few Presbyterian pastors. This was a a pastor friend and colleague in Denver who was telling a story about how his HOA, his homeowners association, they pay for all the trees to get trimmed in their neighborhood. And so uh, he happened to be home when they were finishing up and he looks outside and he notices that a tree in his front lawn is not trimmed. He's confused, so he goes out there and asks, why did you not trim this tree? And they said, well, we don't uh, don't trim fruit trees. 
And he was confused because this particular fruit tree has never borne fruit. And the, the, uh, the tree trimmer said, well, it doesn't matter. Even domesticated pear trees, which is what this is, is still a fruit tree. And so a debate began to ensue, almost this metaphysical style debate of at what point does a fruit tree cease to be a fruit tree if it's no longer bearing fruit, right? Is it a fruit tree if it solely exists for beauty or shade or comfort? If it's a tree like that, is it still a fruit tree? And we live in a period of hyper-individuality, of, of massive sense of autonomy where we want to make our life our own and live according to our own values and our own principles. And in many ways, that hyper-individuality has come into the American church as well. A recent Pew Research poll, um, it was particularly noted toward Southern Baptists, saw that 30% of Southern Baptists now say that they never or seldom attend church. In other words, they, they identify still as Baptists or as evangelicals, but they do not participate in the life of the church. And I'm not picking, up on, picking on Baptists, y'all. This is, this is everywhere. Right? This pew just happened to be related to them, this pew research poll. My point is that we have a very high incidence of churchless Christianity. And so my metaphysical question then is, can a Christian that is on their own, churchless or without any desire to participate in organized religion, really be considered a Christian? So that's what we're going to be discussing together this evening. We're going to be looking more at this last and final I am statement of Jesus. And I want to look at three parts. First, the metaphor of the vine itself. And then secondly, the clippings of the vine, um, the, uh, the, the cutting and the pruning. And then third, the fruit of the vine. So let's first look at, at the metaphor of the vine. Well, there's a number of Old Testament references uh, to the vine, and we actually uh, we read one this morning in our call to worship, or this afternoon. Um, Psalm 80 mentions and references the vine. It's the vine that is brought out of Egypt. Uh, if we were to look at Isaiah chapter 5, we would see that, that, the, that a vineyard is referred to. The Lord planted a vineyard in this good soil. So the vine is actually the Old Testament people of God. It's the Israelites. And all of the passages in the Old Testament that refer to the vineyard or to the vine are referencing the fact that the Israelites were a fruitless people. In their own strength, they failed in the task to be a blessing to all the nations. Right? They failed in their task to live out the commandments, to love God and to love others. And Isaiah is saying in particular in his passage that the vineyard is actually going to be devoured because of that faithlessness, because of that fruitlessness. He's alluding to what was to come. Now, so Jesus takes on this Old Testament biblical metaphor, and as we've discovered in every single one of the I Am statements, Jesus isn't just kind of making up some cool metaphor. He's picking up on biblical Old Testament illusion. And he's saying, okay, what failed before has now been fulfilled. I am the true vine. I am the vine that has not failed. Right? In light of the faithlessness of the Old Testament people of God, Jesus is the faithful one 
Though the Israelites often lived like the other nations, Jesus came and lived righteously. He is the Israel who has kept relationship with and even dependence upon the Father, right, as we read in this passage. And through Jesus' faithfulness, He is the source of life for all who would no longer wish to cut themselves off from relationship with the Lord. He's the source of life for all who would admit their need of God, their dependence upon Him. Right, since Jesus is the vine, then like, what, is, what is the rest of the plant? Um, right, what are the branches? Is Jesus the one getting pruned? Is He the one getting cut off? Well, the rest of the vine then is the people of God. Right? It's all of those who are united to the true vine. And as we read in the Hebrews passage, the New Testament passage that Allie read for us, we find that it is all those who have placed their faith in Jesus, whether they place their faith in the promise of Jesus or whether they place their faith in what He has already done. Right? So the whole vine is not Israel and it's not just Jesus. It's Jesus and all who are united to Jesus by faith, whether Old Testament believers or New Testament. It's all of God's people, His people, the people who are in Christ. It's Advent Houston. It's all of God's, our brothers and sisters in China, all of our brothers and sisters in Brazil, even Russia, right? And it's our father, Abraham. It's Christians throughout the centuries and across the world. And so the reason I'm hammering home this point is that when I hear this passage preached, I've often heard it preached about my relationship with Jesus or your relationship with Jesus. And that is right and that is good but it's also missing out on something else. That the vine is both Jesus and those who place their faith in Jesus, and it is the people of God united to one another through Jesus. This passage assumes multiple branches, all being a part of one organism together. That means that you and I are bound together, that we're family That means that we cannot live the Christian life in relationship with Jesus alone. That by virtue of loving Jesus and placing our faith in Jesus, we then are united to other people who have placed their faith in Jesus. Therefore, church membership is so much bigger, so much better than a fraternity or a sorority or any sort of club that we might want to join. My, my middle daughter, Jillian, has recently been asking my wife and I a whole lot. I, for some reason, she's sort of fixated on the idea of Costco membership and why we have a Costco membership card. Well, so many of us treat church membership like a Costco membership. You go when your spiritual pantry is empty and you want to buy in bulk and kind of fill it back up for the full year, right? Or, or we go when we think we're going to get a good deal, or when we're just wanting to taste something new that we don't really taste in the other times of life. Costco membership or club membership is almost nothing like church membership. Think about the friendships that you've made in church and the friendships that you've made in a a club-like setting. Was it easier for you to develop a deep relationship with someone in the church or someone outside of the church? Or maybe another way of asking kind of the same question, but from, from the other direction is, if a friend in the church hurt you and sinned against you, 
Did it hurt more than if someone else did? Why is that? Well, it's because we believers are connected and a part of the same organism. We cannot live independently. We must not live carelessly with one another. For all that we do, united to our Savior, affects each other. You could say that we all actually carry one another's burdens whether we want to or not. Right? In our sin of omission, if we fail in our love toward brother and sister, we actually are adding to their burden. Right? Because now not only are they dealing with the original burden, they're now dealing with the burden of the fact that they feel cut off from the rest of the vine. Cut off from life-giving uh, joy of fellowship. Or if we do the right thing and we love and empathize with someone who's going through it, no matter what, you are taking on a little bit of their burden. We cannot escape the ecosystem of Christ. It's what He's building. Right? He's building this new humanity, this new creation in Him. And it's not just me and Jesus. It's all of us and Jesus. Okay, so that's what the vine is about. But what then are these clippings? What is the pruning and the cutting about? That's our second point. Well, Jesus says in verse 2 that every branch that doesn't bear fruit is taken away. And that's a hard verse to read as well as, as the, the, the subsequent verses later about being thrown away. right? In light of, of even Isaiah where we learn that, that God's people get overrun by, uh, by the Babylonians and by the Assyrians um, because of their fruitfulness, we come to see things in here as judgment and rightly so. Um, Jesus is saying that there are some who are in the community, that there are some who participate in the life of the people of God who somehow have this lifeless connection to it. Somehow this connection has led to a lack of fruit. And at first glance, you might almost begin to wonder, like, have, I, have I borne enough fruit <laughs> um, to keep this from happening to me? Or like, I don't want to be the branch that gets cut off um, I'm, I'm, if, if so, I might need to do some more churchy things just to make sure that I'm bearing a little bit more fruit, right? But though the passage is talking about judgment for those who don't bear fruit, it's not talking about those who've placed their faith in Jesus. It's talking here about nominal Christians, people who take the name of Christianity. Um, or as our culture says now, they self-identify as Christian, right? But, but their heart or their faith is, is far from the Lord. See, it's talking about people who participate in the life of the church, but who really aren't seeking a relationship with the Savior. So they're the ones who will say, Lord, Lord, and He will say, I never knew you. And this should be sobering. Not, not terrifying, but sobering. It should cause us to reflect and to ask ourselves, am I a part of the church because it's, it's a part of like my self-actualization smoothie? It's a part of this, this one ingredient that I'm throwing together to feel better and to be a better person? Or am I a part of the church because I want and I need Jesus? And if it's the latter, then this verse is not talking about you. And if it's the former, there's still good news. Allow for this to challenge you and to drive you to a place of reflection and need. But, 
Though the first part of verse 2 is talking about Christians, the very next is not talking about Christians, the very next part is. For every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So Jesus is saying here that there's no way around, there's no way escaping right, the, the clipping of the branches here. That is to say that even in our union with Christ, we do not escape hardship. For those of you all who don't know what pruning is, um, we don't really either. I'm not that big of a gardener. But, uh, no, I'm mostly joking. Except that pruning is basically the process by which somehow God made plants that when you cut them, a healthy plant, it grows back even stronger. And that's what they're referencing here. And we struggle with this idea. It hurts to get pruned. But the passage somehow seems to say that, like James says in his letter, that, that pruning and suffering is somehow a gift of God. It's suffering that prunes us. And it's pruning that allows for more fruit to grow. But man, we struggle with this idea as American Christians. We struggle to get on board with what James says when he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Though we might hesitate to say it out loud, so many of us, me included, desperately want for our relationship with Jesus to protect us from all hardship. Right, we, want, we want for our relationship to Jesus to kind of act like a force field or a little bubble against all hardship, saying, Jesus, I love you now. Don't let anything bad happen to me. That's a part of the deal that we're making, right? At least that's what we want. That's what we think. But James is clear. Jesus is clear, and the whole of Scripture backs it up that it is hardship, it's pain, it is suffering that drive us back to a place of recognition of need and dependence. It's hardship that drags us back toward recognition that how badly we need King Jesus in our lives. So it's a catalyst. It's a catalyst that drives us back to bear more fruit as we relight and are united and abide in the vine. So let's look at our third point, the fruit of the vine the passage says in verse 5 that those who abide in the vine bear much fruit. Okay, great. Now, how do I abide in the vine? For some reason, that, that particular verb has always felt challenging to me. It doesn't feel action-y enough. Right? Do we do more Christian things? Do we listen to more Christian radio? Attend more, more Bible studies and, and prayer meetings? No. Um, I mean, yes, but, but no, right? We abide in the vine the same way that we are connected to the vine. We do so by faith. The Bible has a lot to say about faith, right? In fact, faith is one of the few terms uh, where the Bible actually gives us an encyclopedia or dictionary-like definition for it. In Hebrews, it says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the convictions of things not seen. Now, how, if at all, does this have anything to do with abiding in Christ? Well, faith, by definition, puts us in dependence, in a position of dependence in particular. How can we be assured of what hasn't happened yet? How, how can we know with certainty the things that we have not seen? 
How can we have faith in what God has told us? And the answer to all of those questions is it's not about that. It's about the person or the work who has made those promises to us. It has nothing to do with us. It's actually very easy at times to make faith about us, isn't it? Um, Look at me, God. I I have a lot of faith. Or maybe we think negatively and we're like, oh, man, that guy's in the position he's in because he lacks enough faith. Or maybe we even begin to think, um, my faith makes me an asset. It makes me an asset to God's team. It's super strong, and I'm going to do some really great things in the church. Now, I'm caricaturing all of these things, but there's no doubt we have thought them to some degree. But to think that completely misunderstands what it means to abide in Christ by faith. Faith is not about us. Weak faith or strong faith, it's not about us. It's about its referent, what it's pointing toward. Whether I have strong faith or weak faith doesn't really matter if I'm sitting in a chair. If I trust and have faith that this particular chair is going to hold me up, it's not whether I'm nervous about it or whether I have full faith in it. It's about how strong the wood of the chair actually is. Right? Faith's strength is about the object of our faith. Um, when I first got out of college, I worked with a college ministry called RUF for a few years, and uh, I was an intern in Davidson. And uh, RUF interns, at least back then, uh, had to go do training before they were ever, ever allowed to go to campus. And so we were doing uh, a particular training on theology, um, and, uh, and in particular that idea we were talking about being saved by faith alone. And that's one of the tenets of the Reformation, right? That we're saved by faith alone. But this phrase can often be misunderstood. It can be misunderstood to a point where we believe that it is our faith that saves. So in our training, one of the RUF ministers asked us, <clears throat> asked us if our faith saved us. And, you know, you feel, all right, this is a trap. I'm not entirely sure. Some people are a little bit nervous and quiet, but kind of saying yes. Um, And this is going to sound wrong because it sounded wrong when he said it. We are not saved by our faith. Our faith does not save us. It is only Jesus who saves us and he does so by faith. Jesus, the object of our faith, is our saving grace. Our faith is the action that unites us to him. Our faith is what He gives to us so that we can be saved by Him. All that we need to do, that action that I so desperately want in the word abide, all that we need to do is nothing. All that we need to do is actually to receive. It's it's passive. Faith is a gift. It's not something that we muster up on our own. So what we need to do is to recognize that we can't do it on our own, right? And to pray out to the Lord asking, much like uh, the father of the demon-possessed boy who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We ask for uh, him to give us his mercies in that. Now, I I get it, Taylor, right? I get it. You're you're talking a lot about this, but, but... Okay, does that mean, therefore, that I'm just supposed to like let go and let God? 
Um, right? That maybe I'm supposed to abide in Christ by, by saying, God, work. I'm just going to sit here and watch Netflix and I'm going to let you do your business and I'm going to be a little bit more like you. I'm going to just go totally let go and let God, right? I'm not going to do anything in action. Okay, well, that's not what I'm saying. Um, we abide in his love, reminding ourselves of his love and allowing for it to drive us to be obedient, right? We seek to love God and love others. That's what it's talking about later uh, in this very passage. And when we fail to do so, we repent and we turn to him. And this process that happens again and again and again over our lifetime actually molds us into the likeness of Christ. It's a dynamic relationship where we continually believe in him, depend upon him, and we actually do something in following him. We learn what it means to love God and love neighbor like the commandments say. Not in an attempt to earn it, but because we already have his love. Well, every year uh, since I was 12, uh, my family and I grew up going to, we have a, a piece of property in southern Colorado, and we go in the fall and go elk hunting um, every fall. And so um, we, we had a particular way of hunting for a long time up there. It was mainly kind of that sophomoric style of hunting, except that we knew, by sophomore I mean wise fool, uh, right? Uh, but we knew actually, we knew how limited we were. And so we would hunt by just being really still and being really quiet and hoping that we'd see some stuff. Never very active in our pursuit of hunting elk. Um, but a few years ago, we invited one of, the, one of our neighbors to come up and guide us and, and guide me in particular. His name is Art. Uh, and Art grew up on that property, on that land, uh, right around there, basically just watching elk all the time. And Art hunted very, very differently from how we hunted. He was incredibly active, walking miles at a time, calling elk at all time. And it's, it was really frightening to participate in an elk hunt like that when you've never done it before. Because all you're thinking is, well, what if I spook them? What if I push them all off the property? Then we're going to see nothing, right? But as it happened, I followed Art everywhere. I even waited for him. I, I was obedient to everything he told me to do. I even waited for him to shoot, tell me to shoot. Um, now, I've been hunting with adequate success for years. Uh, I've, I've gotten a few, a few elk. We have some in my freezer. I uh, would love to, love to serve you all some sometime. But as I followed Art that particular day, I found myself depending upon him completely. I believed everything that he said was true. But even more than that, I submitted to it. I trusted it. And I, I did it. Right? And so I got an elk that particular morning. I had faith in art. He knew what he was doing far more than I did. Now, did I just sit in my cabin all day saying, Art, now bring me an elk. It will be wonderful. Um, it probably would have worked had I done that, but that's not the point. No, I trusted that his way of doing things, that his instruction was the right way to do things. And I joined him in doing those things. I, I, I didn't focus on what I wanted or what I thought was the right way to do it. I did what he asked, and I trusted him because I had faith in him, and he led me to, to the harvest, so to speak. 
Well, this is what it means to abide by faith. It isn't to independently try and do the right thing, to try and be good people or earn God's favor. Equally, it isn't to to independently try to grow fruit in ourselves through our own faith activity, through through devotional life, or willingness to continue to confess the same sins over and over and over again in hopes that maybe then we'll change. Nor is it to passively meditate, to say, kind of be still and say, "I, I, I have faith, now change me. No, a Christian is one who utterly depends on Jesus. There's nothing that we need to do for Him to make His saving grace more effective. And there's nothing that we need to do to make ourselves more fruitful. We go back to Him. Let me conclude with this. Just more to wrap up. To be a Christian means that we are a part organically and vitally of Christ and therefore one another. That Christ is making a new humanity and He's doing so by His pruning and by His cutting. But finally, that we are united and we abide in faith in Him. By faith, when I'm struggling, y'all help me. By faith, when you are struggling, I help you. By faith, when one of us is lamenting, we all lament. We all learn to follow Jesus together in faith. And as we do so, that's how we begin to grow over and over again. Would y'all pray with me? Our God and Father, we do thank you. Lord, I thank you for your grace to us in Jesus. Lord, I thank you that even those of us who believe that we can independently do things on our own, that you graciously show us time and time again that that's false. And that only true and real life comes through you. And I pray that you would drive us to that even this afternoon. Drive us to our need of you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.